0: Welcome to our online service during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Andrew Bates and I'm an elder here at Arendelle Alliance Church. We trust this time will be a source of encouragement and hope. A couple of announcements before we have a time of prayer that we'll be having communion today. So please be prepared to partake. Also, our annual meeting on June 21st will be done through video conferencing on Zoom. If you need assistance in setting this up, please contact the office. Uh, Zoom works well during our time of social distancing and appears to be our best alternative. Also, you received a need bulletin this week. Please read it and pray for the needs listed. This is Psalm 3. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in god but you o lord are a shield about me my glory and the one who lifts my head i was crying to the lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain i lay down and slept i awoke, for the lord sustains me i will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me around me arise o lord save me O my god for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come before you humbly and grateful for your mercy and grace you have given to us. We thank you for your mercies, our new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We confess we are sinful, fearful, and anxious people. Forgive us, May we not waver in trusting you more. We thank you for your forgiveness, justification, sanctification, redemption, love, joy, hope. We have when we trust in you. We ask now to pray for our, our international workers and ministries. <clears throat> we pray for Liz McTaggart of People International. We pray that our ministry would bear fruit as they reach out to people in Central Asia with the gospel. We pray for the Ministry of the Bridge here in Saskatoon. We pray that their financial and material needs would be met during these challenging times. We pray for Louisa, a staff member, who is in the hospital with a non-COVID-related illness, who chose to go home instead of palliative care. Uh, minister your physical and spiritual needs by your grace. We pray for the Alliance Churches in Winnipeg, the Winnipeg Japanese, the winnipeg Kilcona Park, and the Bridge, May you supply their needs for them, and may the gospel be given clearly. We pray for the preparation for the annual meeting coming up on June 21st. We pray for unity in your truth. May our communion time be meaningful today. We pray for the government as they deal with the challenges of COVID-19. We pray for the congregation needs during this time as well. Whether it be financial or layoffs, strengthen our congregation by your word and Holy Spirit. Thank you for hearing us, and we ask these requests in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: That welcomes me, the kindness of mercy, that bought with blood wholeheartedly, my soul undeserved. God. So, um... Oh Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me.
2: Hello, I'll be reading Acts 4, 1-31, the CBS version. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about five thousand. The next day the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if you are questioning today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick, and as how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the men who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, What will you do with them? For it is obvious that all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach to all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in God's sight to you, listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing had been performed was more than forty years old. After they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign God, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. It is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles range and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both her odd Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at these threats, and grant your servants to speak your word with all boldness, while we stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus.
3: Good morning, Arendelle Alliance Church family. Thank you for joining us for this week's service. I invite you, if you've got Bibles close at hand, to join us in Acts chapter 4 as we continue this series. We've been looking at what God has done in the early church, beginning with Jesus' words, remain in Jerusalem until the promised Holy Spirit comes. We followed through as the replacement for Judas Iscariot was picked. We looked at Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes and we see the miracle that happens there. For those of you who were in church back in September already, my candidating weekend was actually Acts 2.42, a text that God has laid heavily on my heart, devoting ourselves to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer and to the word. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 3, the healing of the lame man, and now we're picking up the story in the aftermath of Peter and John meeting this guy, This man who we're now going to find out, 40 years old, when the healing happens, his whole life he has not walked. That miracle where not only are his legs restored, but he skips the whole process of learning to walk. As God supernaturally makes him whole, completely whole, we now are going to pick up the story with the reaction of the religious establishment. And as we turn to Acts 4, I want to consider for a moment a question that comes up, in various ways, in various places, and that is, on what grounds or in what circumstance would we refuse to submit to authority over us? This is a challenging question, especially in a political landscape like Canada, Saskatchewan, where we may or may not agree with our government. We may not agree with our church leadership. We may not agree with our boss, our parents, That question of when do we say no, we will not submit to authority. When will we say no, we will do what we feel we need to do in the sight of God versus when do we make that choice and say we're going to submit. The life of David actually is a bit of a character study in this question. And that's really a sermon for another time as we look at the relationship between David and Saul. But one moment that stands out in particular for me is when David cuts the corner of Saul's cloak and then actually repents of it, realizing I have no right to strike the Lord's anointed. I don't even have the right to cut off a corner of his cloak. And in fact, Paul himself will write later on in Romans that there is no authority except that which God has constituted. And yet we're going to see here in Acts 4 this challenge where the apostles are going to be put in a position. Do we obey God or do we obey men? And I want to keep this question in mind as we come to Acts 4. As we ask the question, how do we live as Christians in Canada how do we live as Christians in our marketplace, in our homes, when sometimes we feel like the call of God is put at odds with what people in authority over us are saying to us? So, with this in mind, Acts chapter 4, the backdrop force, Peter and John going to the temple, have met the lame man at the beautiful gate, silver and gold they don't have, in the name of Christ, get up and walk. That miracle has happened, the proclamation of the gospel, Jesus did buried, resurrected according to God's plan has again been spoken. And we find out here the response to the gospel. Verse four, many who heard the message believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, if that's the number of men, once you factor in wives and children, obviously this early church has experienced radical, actually somewhat complicated growth. The thought of suddenly 5,000 men following Jesus and we don't know how far past Pentecost but when you consider just the challenges of shepherding that larger group that's the season that they're in but back in verse 2 as, as all of these new converts are hearing the gospel responding to it we find out the religious establishment has a very different reaction verse 2 they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In these early verses in particular we're focused on the Sadducees. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. There's no mention of the Pharisees yet. We'll get to them in a few moments. But they're annoyed at this teaching of the resurrection because the Sadducees who run the temple, who are the hereditary spiritual leaders of Israel, they only read to the end of Deuteronomy. They don't believe that the rest of the Old Testament is actually the word of God. They know it exists, but they don't count it as the word. Whereas the Pharisees, they read all of our Old Testament and they believe there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. This is a sticking point in first century Judaism. There's a fight on in Jerusalem. Pharisees believe one thing, the Sadducees believe the other. And these two groups will sometimes lock horns over this. And we're going to see this as we work our way through Acts. Well, opposition now comes. And so Peter and John are brought they are brought in front of the Sanhedrin, verse three, uh, sorry, verse five. The next day, the rulers, elders, scribes, assembled in Jerusalem, and we're told who's there. Annas is the high priest and Caiaphas, and there's actually a little bit of an interesting tension there because Annas is actually the ex-high priest. The Romans had deposed him. He, he wasn't doing what they wanted, so they removed him. They put Caiaphas in in his place. Caiaphas is his son-in-law, and these two men actually work together the people would regard Anani- sorry, Annas as the high priest, Caiaphas is the official, but the two of them had a close working relationship and so we'll often meet them together. We don't know who the rest of these men mentioned are, but we now find out the trial is on. In contrast to Jesus' trial, it's a daytime trial. Jesus' trial was actually an illegal trial when they met at night to ask, what are we going to do with Jesus, and then ask have him condemned to death. That trial was not actually legal. This one, they're following the rules. So it is now daytime. And they're there. They're hearing the case. And that interesting challenge they have in verse 7. By what power or in what name have you done this? They don't question a miracle has happened. They want to know how the miracle happened. What authority. When they ask what name or what power, they're recognizing. Because when we invoke a name, we invoke the person behind the name. Just as when Moses asked for God's name and God said, I am that I am. Or when Jacob, wrestling with God, what is your name? And God would not give it. Names are powerful. Names are significant. If I made fun of your name, you would be unhappy. Uh, With a name like Jorn, you'd be amazed at the variant spellings and pronunciations I've had of my name over the years. And our natural instinct with our name is we take it very personally. By what name or power did you do this? The Sanhedrin wants to know how did this happen? And now we have the whole religious establishment, Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the same group that saw fit to have Jesus condemned to death. And now, in trying to prevent the ministry of Jesus and trying to end it, now the problem has expanded because this lame man has been healed. And now there's Peter and John and the rest of the disciples who are now performing miracles. So they challenged them, by what name or what authority? Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit said, rulers and elders. And he goes on, and again, as we saw in chapter 2, and also in chapter 3, again, Peter goes on and talks about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. This Jesus, verse 11, the stone rejected by you builders, which became the cornerstone. Peter is again talking about how Jesus Christ... The son of God died according to the plan of God, was buried, was really dead, and was raised again to life so that we might be forgiven and we might be set free. And that this was not a surprise to God. This was the plan from of old. When he links here to this quote about this cornerstone, he's linking it back again to the Old Testament and saying this plan God had is the plan he has had all along. How many... how many places in the Old Testament do we have references to Jesus? Where's our first one? Genesis 3, possibly Genesis 1. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Let us make man. And we suddenly find there's the voice speaking and the means by which creation happens. And the Spirit hovering. We actually have the Trinity there in Genesis 1. But by Genesis 3, the offspring who will come and crush the head of the serpent. Uh, just reading in Isaiah 7, the reminder, that sign that will be given, the virgin will give birth and you will call him Emmanuel. Peter is again linking Jesus back to all these Old Testament prophecies. God had seen fit from before the creation of the world to lay down a salvation plan. And that salvation plan, again, the Sanhedrin now hears it clearly clearly. This is the power by which the healing has happened. Never do Peter and John ever claim they have power. Never do the disciples ever say, it's our own ability that allows these things to happen. They always point the audience back to God, to Father, Son, and to the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter really nails them in verse 12 with a very critical concept that we need to be mindful of that is echoed in Jesus own words in John 14 There's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to people This is the only means of salvation Jesus himself says in John 14:6 I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me And so we have this very clear salvation statement, and it's an exclusive salvation statement, not allowing the possibility of any other means. The only way of eternal life is through the blood of Christ. The only means of eternal life is through the salvation work of Jesus and faith and trust in him alone. This is a consistent gospel message. If we were to read Paul's letters, Peter's letters, what John himself will write in his letters and in the gospel. That gospel message is always consistent. Salvation is only in Christ Jesus. Well, they asked the disciples to leave. The Sanhedrin, they've got a bit of a problem on two fronts. First off, they're not unified themselves. The Sadducees believe one set of things. The Pharisees believe another. So there's an interesting tension there between these two groups that Paul himself will later exploit. They're going to debate the merits. But they also, in asking them to leave, make the observation. These are untrained men. And yet they speak with boldness. They speak with power. They speak with understanding. Peter, the fisherman, he's quoting scripture to them. Peter has a very clear understanding of what's going on and is able to articulate clearly who Jesus is, what he has done, and how Jesus' death and resurrection was prophesied All the way through the Old Testament. These are unskilled, untrained fishermen. They're not intellectual elites like we are, would be the thinking of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, these are professional academics, and they recognize in these fishermen they're speaking our language. They challenge them. What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called them in and ordered them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now notice what's just happened. The Sanhedrin, the religious establishment, has recognized a miracle has happened. They can't just pretend it didn't because the man is 40 years old, he is there, he's walking, he's leaping, he's giving praise to God. They cannot deny the miracle that's happened. But rather than engage with the theological question of the power and authority by which the miracle happened, and they asked, by whose name or by what power did this happen? Rather than engage with that question, they simply try and shut down the apostles to from They command them, don't teach in this name anymore. Stop. This starts a pattern in Acts that I find deeply troubling and deeply frustrating. And is, for one better way to put it, is actually kind of a challenge to my own soul. The Sanhedrin does not stop. This religious establishment, this group of 70 men, they are the elders of Israel, the intellectual, spiritual uh, leadership of the entire nation. They hear the truth. They do not stop and ask hard, personal, spiritual questions like, what if what the disciples are teaching is true? What if this miracle is from God? What if we were wrong about who Jesus is? And why this is such a confrontation in my own personal soul is, I'm aware, I have blind spots. We all have blind spots. I have biases. I have things that I'm really comfortable with, things that don't fit the way I think God works. And the example of the Sanhedrin is a warning to me to always be asking God to guide me into all truth. Because the reality is, for many of the Sanhedrin, they will spend a Christless eternity cut off from the presence of God. Having heard the gospel, having probably seen the miracles of Jesus, because their biases and their pride and their assumptions about who God is blind them to the truth, and they never ask And they never listen to the Spirit of God guiding them into truth. They reject the truth and they will go to a godless eternity. Where are our blind spots? We'll come back to that. Peter and John are told, do not teach in this name anymore. And this is where that opening question that we talked about, when do we say we will not submit, comes in. Their response here. Verse 19, Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. At the end of this interlude, the Sanhedrin's order is completely contradicted by the will of God. God has made it clear. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations. He said, Acts Chapter 1, you will be my witness at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We're just getting into Judea here in Acts chapter 4. The gospel must go out. The Sanhedrin's order is in complete contradiction to the will of God. This isn't one of those cases of, well, maybe we can compromise. Maybe we can make some adjustments. It's completely contradictory, and it places Peter and John in the choice. Do we obey God or do we obey men? And there is no middle ground for them. And Peter and John's response is, we must obey God. And they, in fact, invite the Sanhedrin to contradict them on this point. And if the Sanhedrin had bothered to engage with the theological question of who Jesus was, it would be an easy, easy piece for them to come to understand, yes, you need to speak in this name. But their, their political agenda, their personal agendas have gotten in the way, have blinded them and have ordered, don't speak in the name of Jesus, and the apostles say, we must speak in the name of Jesus. Paul himself will make it clear there is no authority except that which God has constituted. We are to be in submission to the authority over us. But we see here there is an exception. When it is completely contradicted by the clear call of God, and we need to be so careful with this, there are times where we must stand up and say, this is wrong. And we cannot submit. But we need to be careful. We need to be prayerful. We need to be inviting the Spirit of God to guide us in those moments. Ironically, when Paul writes to the Romans, submit the authority over you. It was in a season where the Caesars were evil men. And evil was being done in the name of the government. He says, we submit the authorities over us. But we do see there are times where we have to stand up and say, this is wrong. We must stand for what is right. God's word clearly states what we are to do. When we consider our world today, there are places that are hostile to the gospel that have ordered. The gospel must not be shared. Does that mean we don't go and share? No, we still go and we share. And we're wise and we're careful. We can be respectful. And interestingly here, the apostles are respectful of the Sanhedrin, even while saying, we cannot submit to you. We must obey God over men. And in places where we're challenged, we must be very wise, very cautious, and invite the Spirit of God to guide us. How do we stand up for what is right? When do we dissent? When do we say we will not bow the knee? I love the example of these men. Decide for yourselves. We are unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. They go out from here now. They go back, they meet with the church, and in the last section here, starting at verse 23, we find out they go back and they meet and they report and explain. This is what the Sanhedrin has said to us. This is what has happened. And they have a prayer meeting again. Regular pattern in Acts. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And if the Sanhedrin thought they were winning, it's pretty clear by the end of our section here at verse 31, the Sanhedrin's will is not being followed. Their wishes are not being abided by. They come together, they pray. They recognize people try and oppose the will of God. Verse 27, in fact, in the city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. The irony there, God predestined it. They were using it for evil. God intended it for good. Very clearly, God is completely sovereign despite the plans of evil men. They acknowledge what has happened. But notice their request here, starting at verse 30. Stretch out your hand for healing, for signs, for wonders to be performed in your name through your holy servant, Jesus. When they prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak The word of God boldly. The Sanhedrin says don't teach in this name anymore. They have a prayer meeting. And the result is they speak the word boldly. They're doing the opposite of what the Sanhedrin said. Because God is going to advance his kingdom. I love what the apostles and the church do here. They pray for what they want. They ask for more healing, more signs, more wonders performed in your name. And God answers their prayer. And we're really in what is a golden age of the church here right now, where the apostles are performing miracles and people are coming to Christ, and the gospel is being heard by many. And while there's opposition, it has not really gotten painful yet. The Sanhedrin has only warned them, has threatened them. There's been no actual uh, direct punishment, not yet. That was coming. But we're in a golden age as God blesses the church and the word of God is proclaimed boldly. So what do we do with this? Well, first off, that first opening question. When do we obey God? When do we obey men? What does it look like to submit? I don't have a good set of guidelines. Every situation where the will of God is put against the will of men is challenging. I've been in the church for about 40 years And there are seasons and times where we make decisions as a church that may appear to be in contradiction of the will of God. Is that actually the case or not? I know having not been in leadership at times, I've I've heard decisions made and then you find out a little bit more information. And you understand more fully that God is at work. God has anointed and appointed leadership in a church and he speaks to them and guides them. I had one case where I was a little unhappy with the church I was in, a decision the leadership took. And I I actually went to prayer with God in it. I was a little bit indignant. I was young and I was a little excited. And I remember as I prayed it, that sense from the Spirit of God, I say to the leaders things I don't say to you. Submit to your leadership. And in very short order, the will of God was made clear. Had I had my way, it would have been wrong. My attitude was bad. I needed to learn to submit and to trust the leadership God had called. But there's also been seasons I know in my own life where I have been forced into awkward positions. Will I obey God? Will I fear God or will I fear men? Will I speak the truth in love, even if it's difficult or unpopular? I don't have any clear guidelines for this except to say As we seek the face of God, as we invite the Spirit of God to guide us into all truth, spend time in the Word of God. I'm a a big fan of wise counsel and I have mentors in my life if I feel that there's tensions going on in relationships with leadership. To go to them and say, am I hearing this right? Canadian politics is always a challenge. No matter who's in power, there's always somebody who agrees and somebody who disagrees. I've been blessed with a lot of American friends and every time an American election comes up I've got friends who are Democrat and I've got friends who are Republican and you hear the conversations. It's difficult. How do we live so we submit to authority over us? How do we properly honour authority over us? When do we stand up and say we must obey God and we're going to disobey authority? My solution to every problem in the Christian life is prayer and fasting. There are no easy answers. Here, Peter and John say we will not submit, but we need to be careful. There's a warning here for me that I shared earlier. It's the Sanhedrin hears the gospel of Jesus, sees the miracle, looks at what's happening, and never engages with the deeper theological questions, does not ask who is Jesus, does not consider maybe what the apostles are teaching is true. And we know a few of the Sanhedrin will later become Christians, but many don't. Is my theological box of who God is too small? Have I blinded myself because of my biases, my experience, my history? Am I missing the things of God because it doesn't fit with what I think? I'm challenged to always be seeking God, to always be relying on the word to guide me into all truth, to invite the spirit of God to show me where I have been blinded by sin, by pride, by history, by pain, by any number of things. There's a challenge for us here. Don't miss the things of God because they don't look like what we expect. My, my life story, I, I keep expecting God to work one way and he pretty consistently works completely different from what I expect. I'm so thankful for that, that I don't get my way most of the time. But I need to be careful to guard my heart to keep seeking God and the fullness of what he has for me, whatever that is, wherever that is. One of the challenges with with being a theology professor is in a classroom where you're supposed to be the smart guy in the room with all the answers, having 18-year-olds speak the truth in love in a way that's convicting to you. I've been blessed with teaching, beginning preaching classes for many years, and every year, sitting, evaluating sermons, having my students speak the truth in love and having the Spirit of God convict me as I listen to students preach. And I have a choice. Will I harden my heart or will I listen to the truth of God regardless of who's speaking it, regardless of whether or not I'm comfortable with it? So there's a challenge for us here. Not only be careful how we submit or don't submit, but also are we listening for God? A couple of other things. There's a reminder here in this text, we must proclaim the resurrected Jesus. One of my prayers for us as a church, and I invite you to pray with us, in this COVID season, Bible camps are shutting down. How are we going to proclaim the gospel? We're discussing right now what to do with programs like Vacation Bible School. And churches all across Western Canada, the the children's pastors and children's leaders and, and ministry directors are meeting together and asking, what are we going to do? Because the gospel must be proclaimed. I often come back to this question on a much more personal level. What am I doing personally to share the death and resurrection of Jesus with those I come in contact with? I live in a condo complex. I have neighbors. Am I sharing the truth of who Jesus is with them? The gospel must go out. There's a call here for prayer and a reminder here. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. I love this final closing moment here. The disciples ask for what they want in prayer. And that is a very, very big deal to me. When I pray for healing for someone, I always ask for what I want. But also some of those other prayers that we see in the Gospels. Lord, help me in my unbelief because sometimes I ask for what I don't believe for. Lord, help me in my unbelief. And Jesus' own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is probably my favorite prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. Not prayed in a lack of faith, but prayed in a recognition that God's will and God's plan are better. But a clear invitation in prayer. Ask for what we want. Trust God for what he has for us. And live in the fullness of what he gives to us. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your work in the apostles. We thank you for this text. Lord, I pray for us as a church that you guide us. When do we take a stand and say we cannot bow the knee? We cannot submit. Think of the three friends in the book of Daniel who say to Nebuchadnezzar, we cannot bow. And they're respectful, but they're firm. I think of Peter and John here, respectful but firm. I think of Paul's reminder that we do submit when we can. Lord, guide us in what it looks like to honor those you placed in authority over us. Guide us in what it looks like to bless them. And guide us in what it looks like to fear you over men. To honor you over men. And be faithful to you over faithful to our own wishes, our own wants, our own desires, the desires of those around us. Lord, guide us in what it looks like to be your hands and feet in this world. Father, I pray for us as a congregation that you would confront us and challenge us with this call to prayer. This call to prayerfully consider truth and Have we tried to put you in a box? Are we missing what you have for us because it doesn't fit? The Sanhedrin never even asks questions like, what if the disciples are telling the truth? What if they're right and we're wrong? Lord God, do not let us be blind. But Holy Spirit, as you promised, guide us into all truth. Give us the courage to pray as you would have us pray. Give us the courage to ask for what we truly want. Give us the courage to be submitted to your will. And Lord, would you use us? Would you fill us? Would you move among us in power? Lord, we want to see revival in Saskatoon. We want to see the kingdom advanced. Give us wisdom to know how to do this, how to partner with you. We don't know what to do with things like VBS. Summer camps are challenged. So many programs are closed and yet the gospel must go out. Holy Spirit... Fill us and guide us in what this looks like. Holy God, use us. Jesus, thank you that you've called us to be your hands and feet. Be glorified in and through us for the sake of your name and your kingdom. We ask. Amen. Welcome to our time of communion this morning. As we come to the communion table, I'd like to remind you first and foremost, this is not a celebration of Arredell Alliance Church. It's not a celebration of the Christian Missionary Alliance. This is a celebration of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The night before he is put on trial and crucified, he meets with his disciples, and in fact, he says, I've longed to celebrate this with you. The symbol of his body broken, his blood shed, that will become this lasting remembrance of his death and resurrection, reminding us of where our salvation comes from, reminding us, that our faith and our eternity are sure and secure and we get to partake of this symbol. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to celebrate with us. And uh, if you need to pause the video at this point to get your juice and get your bread ready, please feel free to do so, that you can partake with us in a few moments, wherever it is that you are as we are doing this. And I want to remind us as we get ready to do communion, of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He, He does call the Corinthians to make a regular habit. For as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It's something we should be doing regularly. But he does remind us it's a very serious thing. Our salvation in Jesus is not to be taken lightly. His work on the cross is not to be taken lightly. In fact, Paul writes this for us. So then, whenever you eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, You'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so as we begin, I'd like to take a few moments and consider the state of our soul. Are there things that we need to confess? Do we need to pause the video and and maybe ask forgiveness of someone? Do we need to pause the video and ask God's forgiveness. Let's take a few moments and consider, are we eating and drinking with our hearts and our spirits aligned with Jesus for his honor and glory? Are we recognizing his body? Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for this chance to gather wherever we are in your name and celebrate your death and resurrection. And Lord Jesus, we seek to honour you by recognising your body, both your physical body put to death on a cross and your body, us, the church. Thank you that you've called us as your people. Thank you that you died for our sins and thank you for this reminder we have in communion of your death and your resurrection and the promise that you are coming again, that this is a deposit, this is is a, a reminder of the more that you have promised and that your promises are faithful. Lord, I ask that you would cleanse us. As we wait on you, Holy Spirit, would you restore our souls? If there's sin, would you make us mindful of it that we could repent and confess? And Lord, where there is forgiveness, would you remind our souls that you are faithful, and when you forgive, it is taken care of because it was nailed to the cross. Thank you for your work. In the name of Jesus, amen. It's important that not only do we take it seriously and ask, are there things we need to address? But I also think it's really important communion to remember, this is a celebration. This is the reminder that we are forgiven. This is the reminder that we spend eternity with Christ. This is the promise that has not yet been completely fulfilled because we're here on earth. But it's that promise that someday we will be with Christ. We will see his face. I love the end of Revelation where we're in the new Jerusalem and we don't need the sun, we don't need the moon because God himself is there and he gives us light and his name is written upon us and we see his face. When Isaiah saw the face of God in Isaiah 6, he was terrified. When we will see the face of Christ... At the second coming, we will not be terrified as his people. We will be celebrating. And this morning, we celebrate the liberation we have from the bondage of sin and death in Jesus for his glory and for his honor. We're reminded of these words. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Holy God, thank you for your broken body. Jesus, we do not understand the cross and the suffering that went with it, but we thank you for doing it on our behalf that we might be forgiven. We thank you for your broken body, and as we now partake of this communion, Lord, we celebrate what you've done for us with much thankfulness and much joy. Amen. And so if you have your cracker, your wafer, your bread, let's partake together. The broken body of Christ for our forgiveness. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11 in the same way. He also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray again. Lord, thank you for your shed blood. You said without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins and we are sinners. So you shed your blood that we might be forgiven. Thank you for making us your children. Thank you for making us your people. Thank you for dying for us and shedding your blood, your willingness to do this, that we might live. Praise be to you, Holy Jesus. Amen. The blood of Christ shed for us. Normally at this time, we would also invite people who were seeking prayer for healing to come forward. We're meeting in our homes, we're meeting in different places. But if you require prayer, we do encourage you, please email the office with your prayer requests. You're welcome to email me, joran.green at arendalealliance.ca or others on the prayer team. Please make us aware of your needs. And in this day, would you know the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? as we celebrate his death and resurrection through communion, the reminder, we are his children and he loves us. God bless you.